Welcome to the Media Cat Magazine podcast. Thank you for tuning in for the next in our series, Rebel with a Cause, with me, Opal Turner. For this series, we are talking about the relationship between creativity and strategy, or in my other words, art, science, and logic. Because it is my pet theory that strategy and planning can be a creative secret weapon and that we overly separate the disciplines in our industry. So today we are talking to the lovely Joe White, strategy and creative leader at Headland Consultants. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So I wanted to start, Joe, with how we were introduced, because I think that's quite 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 an important thing for us to discuss because it's important to both both of us and and one that I feel we don't really discuss enough in our in our industry um but all of us with hearts and brains are in one way or another one would hope involved in increasing the diversity within our industry but one of the much forgotten aspects of this conversation is class so SNAP's wonderful Jed Hallam started Common People, um, an industry forum for working class people in Adland about a year ago. So shout out to all the Common People. Thank you, Jed, for an incredible platform. And thank you um, to the platform and to my partner, Luke, for introducing introducing me to you, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'd like to start with that subject, if that's all right with you, because I'm, I'm starting to see that this podcast is really starting to attract folk who are not who not only are both the rebel and the cause but are also cause driven me very much included um and so i'm i'm intrigued do you think coming from a working class background has influenced the types of work you do and 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 focus on is does anything spring to mind definitely more more and more increasingly so i think like for the first 10 years or so um of my career I'm kind of into my 40s now full disclosure um but I think for a long time I tried to cover up where I was from so originally I'm from I'm from Wigan but I would say oh I'm from Manchester it would just be little subtle things like that and then when I moved to London there's lots of discussion in the group you just mentioned about accents um you know I really lost my northern accent quite quickly when I came to London when I was um 19 so I think for a long time I tried to run away from it. I tried to escape it and I tried to be part of that sort of London neutral professional class and sort of blend in as much as I possibly could. And it would have been absolutely abhorrent for me to bring my class background and and, um, my roots to the table. Um, But increasingly, you know, whether there's a, a kind of change, it's a change in the wind, you know, groups like common people just being able to talk about, um, backgrounds that aren't sort of from privileged um, areas or from you know non-state school backgrounds from paying schools and things like that I just feel like I'm finding it more easy to talk about and maybe some of its age as well but yeah definitely I see it as a benefit and once you start to look around you realize how little of you know the world outside of the London bubble the world outside that one percent bubble even um, is represented in the work that we do and the conversations that we have. So yeah, it's it's kind of exotic, isn't it? I think at the moment, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Especially you know in the context of the time that we're speaking, which is the UK is having a ridiculous cost of living crisis. Don't even get me started on the government. We're all over the place. But the the right fuck the Tories. Um, <laughs> that's my personal opinion, not that of me. Get it all out. Get it all out. <laughs> 
but yeah it is it is incredible it is increasingly wild to me that because recently i've been seeing and i'm sure you've seen this as well recently i've been seeing a lot of okay how how do we advertise how do we um represent brands in a space where the cost of living is is higher than ever and people are struggling and like it's i find it quite funny i probably shouldn't i find it quite funny that that the the general um recommendation is why don't you actually help try adding value to people's lives and that's how you can that's how you can represent your brand in in the world right now and i i just often find that quite hilarious to be honest with you because i'm like shocking we should add things to people's lives i so agree the fact that it takes this and maybe it does take this maybe we've been too comfortable for too long and it takes this for to break down some of those barriers and for people to be sort of rehumanized in a way um, you know, one of the things we've been looking at um, in my current current role is is that shift from thinking of people as consumers into citizens and just really understanding that, you know, guess what? There's more to human beings than just a transactional moment of buying something or, you know, even those very base level needs that are having to be fulfilled in different ways with food banks, et cetera, at the moment, you know, um, human beings are so much more than just the stuff that passes between businesses and, you know, and their cupboards or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting shift that's going on at the moment, but it is kind of wild, isn't it, that that's a revelation in any way. I know, especially since strategically we're always talking about okay what what's the human truth what's the reason to believe like give me something that matters and then and then create using that so i just i'm kind of like okay well welcome to strategy everyone um <laughs> it's called adding something um what but i mean i'm i'm happy to see it and happy to see that there's some there's some really nice work going on at the moment um uncommon did a, a great piece with all plants about not school dinners um and you know there's some really great work going on but it it has taken, you know, this cost of living crisis to get there for most people. Have you found that throughout your life since you've kind of come come to terms, come out almost as 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 working class? How how have you found have you found that impacts the kind of work that you do and and the way that you focus what work you do? Yeah, I think I'm I'm aware of my privilege a lot more. You know, I talk about working class. I mean, I came from a family in Wigan. My parents were teachers. You know, I had a lot of privileges to that, that set me on a good path and did well and, and was able to sort of chase a whole load of opportunities. Um, but being able to pass that back and kind of pay it forward, I think whether that is in the work that we do and making it as inclusive as possible, making it as sort of humane as possible, but also, you know, being able to challenge others, peers, clients who are also in positions of privilege and positions of power in any way that I can to try and just make the world a bit better with my own puny career that I have um, is something that I just, I think about that all the time, literally every day. Uh, And I've really struggled over the last couple of years of thinking, you know, do I just ditch agency world and go and work for an NGO or go and work for somewhere where I really feel like I'm living out those values day to day and sort of concluded that actually that privilege has given me um, um, you know a position that I shouldn't throw away essentially that I should use the skills and the position that I've built up over the last 20 years to try and make change from within the system rather than ditching it all and going kind of 
glue myself to a building or whatever as much as at times it feels like that's an appropriate reaction yeah it's 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 a crazy world right now but it's it's, it's interesting that you say that because um uh the last episode we had josh acapo um from archetype on and he was saying i judge the work that we do um by how much it's minimizing harm mm. because we're in a world we're in a system that is inherently harmful to to marginalized folks particularly um and then even that's obviously compounded when when you have an intersectional identity and so he was saying that you know it's our responsibility to to minimize that because it's going to happen you know and i think we've all kind of come to the same conclusion is we go should should we be here should we not be doing something quote unquote more valuable with our lives and it's like well no actually this industry that we that we are in whether we like it or not exists and it is really fucking powerful yeah and so i don't know about you but i'd much rather have have us in it and have you know working class folk and disabled folk and all of all everyone represented in that industry instead of going okay well as much as I'd love to screw over capitalism I don't actually think I'm in charge of that (laughs) totally and once you open your eyes and once you start sharing a bit more of your own background and your own vulnerability it's surprising how many like-minded people there are you know who are on their own path they might have their own causes that they're championing or whatever but I think just showing that you're up for um more of an exploratory way of working and putting social values at the heart of the work that you're doing within capitalism is, you know, it, it's, it, we all help one another, I think. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, that's a huge part of the reason that I did this podcast. I was like, I need, I need to find my people. There must be other people who believe in the same things that I believe. Let me get an excuse to talk to them um, for hours and call it work. It's great. Um, but it is, it is exactly that is it's sometimes you know we we need we need that openness with one another so that we can find those commonalities um because i i very much um feel you when you when you first come to london even though you know i am now and was living you know 35 miles north of london this is just a shocking amount of difference um and going into an office with really really wealthy people who went to you know fee paying schools and go skiing skiing was a thing for me that no one understood that I'd never been skiing oh no I know it's weird isn't it I had a a conversation with someone where they were like you know what did you do at the weekend and they'd been off to go and see you know their firstborn competing at fencing in Paris or something and I was like I was just in the pub (laughs) I don't know what to say. I was watching Netflix in bed. Like, yeah, there's I'm not really, really good answer. No, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is, it is insane because I, I, I didn't even really think of myself as working class so much as middle class or lower middle class. Yeah. And then I came into London and I was like, oh, this is middle class. Yeah. Oh, hello. Right. I get it now. And again, Josh Acapo put it really greatly. He was like, if you are if you are working to get a paycheck to survive month to month, you are working class. Yeah. That definition is incredibly powerful in a lot of ways because that puts a lot more of us in the same boat Yeah. than otherwise. I think like COVID was a massive curtain raise moment for me as well. Like literally as you're starting to get a window into everybody's home lives, the people that you kind of saw as like, oh, they're like me, we're working on the same projects, etc. And then all of a sudden you've got a window into their 
lives and homes. And on one hand, I was living in East London at the time and I've got two kids. So we were homeschooling and I was seeing the families of the children that my children are friends with. And in some instances, you know, they're in a high rise, they're working from a single mobile phone. You know, there's other people in the background. They're, you know, they're just trying to make it work as best they can. And then I would hop on a call with a colleague who would be in a kind of, you know, wood panelled office somewhere in a country estate. And I found it really uncomfortable to find where my place was in all of these things. I remember someone saying to me, like, they were going to go and work um from their parents' estate at the weekend. And I was like a bit shocked because for me, an estate is not what they meant. They meant like, I'm going to work in the cottage by the gatehouse on this huge country pad. And like, it really blew my mind. I hadn't ever really considered it in those ways before. Yeah, no, the, just just the word estate means very different things depending on where you came from. Um, no, it's, it's, it's so, it's so wild that that, that I mean, COVID did a lot of things. Like that's very clear at, at this point. But to physically see on the same screen in your same location, two such different or you know multiple different, extremely different realities, at the same time and and be the the kind of the link, be be the one in the middle. I can totally understand how you know cognitive dissonance right you're like wait what exactly that exactly what? that I was like which how is there like a Venn diagram with me in the middle of these two different worlds and where do I belong in all of this and have I, I suppose the confronting question is that have I become a kind of class traitor have I been aspiring so much to the one that I've lost touch with the other I'm trying to find my feet between those two things and I think that's that's what led to that decision that like look I am in this really unique power and if I can uh, position and if I can straddle and if I can help in any way to bring different sides together or different perspectives together then however much cognitive dissonance there is it's it's something that's a good thing it's funny though isn't it because it's almost like that's that's where our industry is our industry remains the the middle link the the space in between the general public and the one percent to a degree because yeah. that's that's what we're doing we are we are making we, we are selling products and services that generally make rich people richer and so it it's it's so much responsibility but it is also so much power um but it is i i feel like it is a a constant cognitive dissonance as far as I'm concerned, especially as like a uh, like literal 30 year old like anti-capitalist. I'm like, I do work in advertising though. Um, <laughs> like, who am I? I don't know. I know, what's going on? What? Yeah, I know. Maybe we can just tear the whole system down from within. I think that's my sort of inner hope, but. I mean, um... we're doing our best guys. We're doing our <laughs> best, I promise. Um, but yeah, it is. It is. I really do think it's it's the nature of the industry to a degree. Um, and then if you're if you are inherently in between, you know, in in your class position or or your experience position as well, you're a bit like what? Yeah. Just constantly, just constantly, yeah. don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Don't really know what's going on. Um, but I wonder what you think about that experience and how much that has influenced the fact that you are both strategic and creative do you think that that has any relationship really I yeah I'm I'm not sure I suppose thinking back to my own kind of career path I think for the last um 
kind of 10 years or so obviously I went through the kind of the early years where it's like what the fuck is this somebody give me the money where's the pub you know it continued like that for a while and then I started to actually get interested in what I was doing um and the first part I think was becoming ever more strategic in the way that the industry would see it and sort of labeling myself as that as well and really leaning into those kind of reductive skills where understanding an issue at depth you know being able to kind of whittle it down and glean it down to a very fine point and leaning into I suppose some of the more analytic and rational thinking that comes with strategy at least from my perspective and from the type of career path that that I've had and I I just wonder I guess with with hindsight is that a bit of my own insecurity? Because I think there's there's bias towards strategic thinking. People like things to be simplified and it makes them feel safe. You know, you can relatively easily, I think in my experience, construct a rational flow and take people along with that. You can paint them a picture how all of these complex problems and you know all these huge opportunities that business has you know all of the different inputs that you would have into planning a campaign pulling it down to a really fine point with strategy makes people feel safe and it also makes them feel like you're smart and it makes them feel like you're going to help them what really takes massive bravery I think is to explode that back out into creative and that demands a lot more of your own self to be put forward the, the clients have to take a huge leap. We all have to get very uncomfortable when we start talking about creative. And again, that carries a huge amount of bias, but negative bias. Like people don't like that, the risk, the potential. What if this? What if that? So I think, you know, in my more earlier years, leaning into strategy was probably because I was quite insecure. Um, and I like to be more cerebral and come across as intellectual, etc. But now I realize actually the, the harder job I think is creative and taking people with you with a creative idea. No, that's such a good point because I it is kind of why I refer to it as the art and the science, right? It's easier to sell science to a scientist than it is to sell a piece of art yeah, that yeah. by definition is subjective. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm especially especially in, you know, when you're in when you're in a C suite, when when you're in a room with people who literally look at numbers all day, it's much easier to go, there's a there's a you know a 50% opportunity here or whatever than there is to go this idea is really going to resonate with people on a really deeply human level and that is going to be worth it um so it's funny isn't it because I I often feel like we kind of overuse and underuse strategy somehow at the same time Mm. it's it's bizarre it's bizarre and it's and I'm sure it's it's also part of why we we lean into that data-driven stuff as well right because it's safer concrete numbers exactly and regardless of all of the bias that we put into how we get those numbers people can believe that that is solid and that is firm when when often I feel like I feel much more confident in something that I can feel than someone presenting to me a number of impressions or something I'm like yeah Yeah. but how did you get there and what counts yeah totally but you've got to make other people feel what you feel as well, haven't you? I think that's, where, you know, you can really buy in with your heart to an idea and everyone in the room can be feeling that magic and totally full of the potential and possibilities. We're all building on it. And then for some reason, you know, it get, the balloon gets popped as soon as you walk out of that room because the what ifs happen and the risk and you go back in this sort of concertina shape 
you know, you've got a strategy, you blow it out into creative, and then all of a sudden somebody starts doing that reductive thinking on the creative and it starts to get minimized down to the point where it's got no magic left in it. Um, so I think, you know, keeping in that expansive frame of mind and keeping in possibility and keeping in creative mode, um, you know, is takes a lot of bravery and not just from the creator or the creative team, but from everybody who touches that idea. Absolutely, because when as soon as you made that analogy of a balloon pops, I was like, I can, I feel that, like I can yeah. literally feel that moment where it goes, Boop. killed it, and it's, and you're like, oh, crap, back into yeah. reality, yeah. like you've 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 got to live in, you know, for an hour or whatever in in a meeting, you've got to live in this incredible little world where where something that you've created is gonna like change everything, and everyone believes in you, and you're an incredible human being, and then. Yeah, it's gone. But that is it is really I love the concertina analogy. You're full of great analogies today, Jane. <laughs> I'm really digging it. The concertina is is a great shout because it is it's it's funny in some ways I always think with with strategy and science actually as a whole is its primary job is to think wide. But its secondary job is to simplify and communicate that in the simplest way possible so it's kind of got this inherent dissonance yeah um, just to overuse the word of of those two things kind of constantly fighting each other and I often think that that's one of the things that is the same in creativity because you're constantly trying to get to this really kind of intangible massive idea of I don't know motivating someone for instance to I don't know, I'm thinking this girl can go and go and exercise and feel good about yourself. This huge, huge idea, this huge thought, this huge emotion. And somehow you need to get that across in a script. And it's actually 30 seconds and it's actually got to be made on this much money. And there's all of these other things that you have to do. And so in some ways, I find that dissonance like oddly comforting Mm -hmm. because it's the same. There's there's a similar dynamic in both. in both disciplines in a way does that make sense yeah it yeah it does I think and some degree of concertinaing as you go through the creative process to get something actually kind of birthed into the real world I think you know there's, there's so many adjustments and you know conversations about casting or conversations about the script as you say and then even you know the talent and the the actors and everything that they brought into those adverts you know it was so much about them and how they showed up and how relatable those new role models it's like it's what probably about 10 years ago now but actually it was so groundbreaking at the time to see you know women and girls kind of presented like that wasn't it so many moments of creativity went into that piece of content um and then also how it was kind of released and the public reaction to it how people felt about it so yeah i think it is probably a big concertina but with lots of little concertinas that sort of follow on don't they yeah, for sure, for sure. Can you can you tell us a bit more? Because you kind of mentioned that you came to London when you were 18. And I know this is like such a cliche question, but I am genuinely actually interested in oh. how people kind of got into the industry and looking back at it specifically, because yeah. I'm only like seven, eight years into my career, but I still look back at, you know, how I came into the industry very differently than I did back in back when it happened. So I'm interested kind of what your journey in was and how much both disciplines came into that or or when when you made that switch, so to speak. 
Yeah, so I came to London to go to uni. That was my my entire thought process was that I just wanted to be in London. You know, I came to uni and that was sort of how I got to London, but it was all about being in the cultural centre, you know, being in a centre where all of the kind of action was happening. You know, you can imagine me sort of peering down uh, from my parents' home in Wigan, like, what's that? All of that over there. Like, I just want to land myself in there, basically. So I did that and I did my degree in psychology and I was not a good student, uh, to be fair. I hadn't realised, actually talking about art and science, I hadn't realised how much hard stats and maths and data was involved in psychology because I was really into uh, psychological theories and even philosophy and things like that side of things but I spent three years you know working with data and working with graphs and things like that and really absolutely hating it but it was a good discipline anyway um, and from there I realized I did not want to do that with my life everybody else went off to join the NHS and private practice and I was like no um, and like a lot of people I'd always looked at um journalism as an option for me because I loved language I loved um being creative I loved writing I love poetry reading all of that stuff so I'd looked at journalism as a way forwards realized that it was a kind of you know two years living on basically no money and a huge scrabble to get a job of any worth that wasn't a kind of you know packaging trade magazine or something like that no disrespect to anybody but I was like okay this this isn't quite what I thought so I um I learned about public relations from there didn't really understand what it was continued to not understand what it was for a good five years but it seemed like if I turned up you know and sort of did what I was told then people paid me money and that was that was sort of okay so it was only when I was kind of 25 ish that I started to get really serious about it and um, I landed on my feet with an agency called Unity and um, a lovely lady called Nick Govier who is now my husband's business partner fortunately because we've stayed in touch and she is just one of the most special people who brings together all the qualities that you've been talking about just a lovely human being who tries to bring in so many social causes and so much of her own heart and passion into her work. So I was really lucky early on to be like, okay, this is, you know, this is possible. I can do good and exciting work that's creative, that genuinely makes a difference. I can find people I relate to. You know, sometimes you just fall in with a tribe that really resonate with you. And I sort of had a second university moment over the last, over those two or three years. Um, and from there, yeah, it all got a bit kind of serious, doesn't it? You know, you sort of, that's where I sort of started to move into more strategic comms um, over kind of 10 years. And yeah, I, did, I don't know. I sort of stumbled along with it, really. I think most people do. Although, you know, I look at some of our young talent that's coming in now and it's so much more formalised, I think. The training, you know, the different groups that you can um, you'd be part of across the industry and the voice and the weight that junior talent has now I think is actually a really good thing you know I think of myself just kind of in the cuttings room basically doing admin and you know organizing lunches and things like that I hope that people coming into the creative industries now get more voice quicker. And that and that has so much to do with with leadership though right it has to do with people people like you in in a position where they can encourage that and I wonder how I mean it's it sounds like you you had an incredible kind of mentor type type person which is always incredible to find finding finding your people early on is just 
a privilege that I don't think can really be fully, fully yeah. explained. Um, but I'm, I wonder how after you almost left that, that bubble, that safe place where you did all your learning and stuff, um, how, how did you find the industry reacted to you? Because you, you essentially, as you say, it wasn't formalized. You had this kind of very kind of intuitive, natural understanding of, I need to need to think strategically, but I also want to do this. And I find sometimes that then, then you leave a certain environment and you go out into the world and the world is like, no, why don't you fit in one box? I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. And you're like, there's boxes. Yes, so many boxes, so many boxes. And sometimes you've got to sort of get into a box and then, you know, widen the box or create a new box for yourself or whatever. Yeah, so I think that kind of mid phase of your career is really difficult where you're not 100% empowered or maybe, you know, maybe more people are these days or more than me to define what it is that you want and define, you know, I sort of, I assumed that a lot. I assumed that other people would shepherd me through. I assumed that other people would just progress me in my career. If I did what I was told, if I did a good job, I've always been hardworking, but you sort of get to that stage where you're like, well, why is this not evolving for me? And part of that I think still comes from being a bit institutionalized from the education system. You know, you're used to just being told where to go and what to do. And it takes a while to realize that nobody is coming to save you. You know, nobody's coming to help you. And actually you do need to kind of muscle up a bit to create the roles that you want um, and be prepared to move and be prepared to speak up to be able to get them really. Um, I do feel like there's almost like a realization moment um, that, that, most people have um, but specifically people who have marginalized identities in one way or another where you go oh meritocracy is fully a myth yes oh totally totally are you like oh so i'm not i'm not going to do well because i'm smart and i work hard yeah. right okay well i need to think about this differently then because yeah that's that a, that's wild isn't it that's a crazy one uh, and and so so true so many people that i've worked with you know over the last two decades who've been really diligent hard workers putting in all the hours turning out all of the work and just being overlooked for completely qualitative reasons completely subjective reasons they're just not got enough kind of social currency with the right people um you know they're not putting themselves you know there might be a small niggle with them that is somehow unbalancing all of the incredible work that they're doing yeah somebody said to me the other day it keeps cropping up in my mind that the system isn't broken the system is rigged I was like I keep coming back to that every day I was like oh that's so that's so true it's so interesting the people who hold the power you know the, that power is disproportionate and it's favoring them all the time so to come in particularly somebody who's from a minoritized community or somebody who's got more barriers to deal with it's it's so hard and we've all got to be aware of that yeah it is it is exactly that isn't it if the system is not broken it is working exactly how it how it was designed to and it just wasn't designed for a bunch of us it just wasn't designed for a bunch of us and i do i do feel like that is i mean at least from my experience is part of what pushes some of us to become more, more multidisciplinary we do have you know those barriers we have more things to to deal with or overcome or simply just more on at any given time you know mm -hmm. whether it's because you need to work during university because you 
can't you can't just study and have enough money to live especially not yeah for sure in the modern day it's 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 almost like the the compounding effect of of those kinds of things I feel pushes us to be a bit more like okay well I can't make all of my money from here or I can't I can pay my rent from here but not my bills so I'm gonna have to go and do that thing over there and you you almost just have this um this adaptability and willingness to go okay well I have this skill I can do that with it but I have this skill and I can also do that with it and therefore you know I I you don't you don't ever necessarily pick and I wonder you know that that comment about about formalizing the processes in a, in a lot of the industry now um which in in so many ways is is absolutely fantastic but i wonder what you think kind of individuals and organizations could be doing better to kind of understand and appeal to folk who are not just from you know marginalized backgrounds but people who just don't necessarily put themselves in one box who are more multidisciplinary than that because i'm constantly surprised um i was doing some doing some research in, into recruitment companies and stuff the other day and the amount of jobs and recruitment companies who still require you need to have you need to have a can line you need to have a you know, blah, 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 blah blah list of experience list of specific skills that you can have even though you could just learn them on the job like normal people um i find it still from my perspective at least it looks it looks like still quite a hostile environment for yeah. multidisciplinary folk what what do you think about that yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean can we just get rid of cvs completely i think like the best way I mean, the best way to sell yourself, and again, this is contingent on you having the network to be able to do it, on you having the self-confidence and belief and the vision for what you're actually trying to achieve, which are huge, huge things. But, you know, just, you know, selling yourself in person, like being able to make those human connections and come across as somebody, to your point, you just feel it in your heart, you know, those really deep gut reactions to like, I just know this person is going to be a brilliant cultural fit. I know that, yes, there might be some box ticking that needs to be done. And yes, 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 we'll work from that perspective. But there's so much more, you know, there's so much more sitting be beneath the waterline almost of what this person is, their potential, you know, the energy that they're going to bring into the business. I think that's an aspiration to be able to hire like that to you know, get it through a light touch process, I suppose, but also be able to go with your gut and be able to just hire people on the basis of their whole self um, and their whole potential self as well. But I mean, it is not easy for, on either side for candidates, but for businesses as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and that is the thing, like at the end of the day, we are we are still working in largely for profit, profit businesses. And so how much do you think it is, you know, is it that you know organizations and and individuals in kind of hiring power positions need to see the the value in in multidisciplinary folk or do you think they simply get caught up with the box ticking exercise i wonder what you think is kind of the disconnect there yeah there's a balance isn't that i think generalists have been undervalued for a very long time um, and being good at many, many different things is becoming increasingly important. And uh, the agency um, where I'm a partner at the moment, Headland, you know, breadth is bread. Well, you want breadth and depth, essentially, you know, so that's always the tension. We have to have people who can glue things together, who can jump 
across different uh, campaign plans, across different clients, et cetera, make connections, you know, look at one thing and splice it together, which is a creative act in itself. I think if you're a generalist and you've got a really broad remit, very broad experience, very broad skill set, you're much more likely to be able to make that creative magic happen because you spot opportunities all the time. Um, so yeah, elevating generalist skills, looking for, you know, good all-rounders. I remember oh, full of all of these analogies today, but I remember reading in some trashy, I think it was Ant Middleton's book about the SAS program on channel four, whatever. But he was like, if you're in the SAS, you're not brilliant at any one thing. You have to be a really, really good all-rounder at loads and loads of different skill sets. So I think just understanding that generalists are elite in their own way. You will always need specialists. You will always need people who can add the extra depth and work with generalists. But without them, we are completely unstuck. It's never an either war, is it? We've kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that it, it's an either or set situation it's, it's funny that you um that you make that make that um what's his name and and middleton it's really not a good reference point is no, it no i love it oh, i love yeah. it because because the sas is elite by definition yeah, we, totally. we refer to them as an elite unit and it, it is that kind of general cultural issue with with not not seeing that value in in generalists and polymaths is one of my favorite words because it sounds smart great it's a great word i'm writing it down right okay good um because you know <laughs> and we've talked about this on the pod before because it is how these different skills are treated to it to a point and i kind of always think of um i liken it to the language of intelligence because traditional traditionally intelligence has meant logical intelligence it's been the most highly prized you you're thinking traditional icons of quote unquote genius you think einstein also almost always a white man just saying yeah. um but my favorite examples of genius are da vinci because he had incredible amounts Bonkers. of creative intelligence yeah, totally. and, and logical intelligence and you know helen keller is another yeah. fave because I couldn't even sit here and list all of the types of intelligence that she had. Like, holy fuck. Yeah. And so it's 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 it is this cultural mismatch, isn't it, that we've we've and I and it does make complete sense to be clear, but I mean capitalism is capitalism is somewhat built on specialism to a degree. But that's that's why in a lot of ways I kind of feel like um now more than ever is the time to embrace generalists, to embrace multidisciplinary folk, to embrace creative as much as strategy and do them together because we have more than ever to deal with. Yeah. We have bigger jobs than ever to do as an industry. But in some ways, I, I feel like we're at quite a quite a tense point in the industry, quite a dramatic change era. Um, not dissimilar from the incredible tension I can imagine you would be in you know, obviously not on the same level in any way, shape or form, but, you know, it's that kind of extreme pressure that we're under, I feel, as an industry and as individuals, to be clear, and regardless of what industry you're in, we're under more pressure yeah. than ever from more places than ever. I wonder who who are the who are the kind of do you have any kind of icons that you look to people that kind of inspired you along the way, not necessarily historical, um, but do you want to shout out anyone? I mean, I, I literally have a historical figure in mind, which I'm right. just going to shout out anyway. But like Josephine Baker, I only mentioned this because you were like, 
just Da Vinci, people who can be so many different things in one lifetime, it just absolutely blows my mind. So like to go from, you know, her stage shows and her banana costumes and all this amazing creativity and expression of her identity as a, as a black woman and then to be a spy in the Second World War, like at another moment in history where there's so much tension, existential tension, and then to just go and absolutely just boss it and be a spy across Europe. And then so. and then trying and then she went on to create her quote unquote rainbow tribe. Yes. Of, and she had just, a pet cheetah, which is I just, mean, the woman was a vibe, let's be clear. I mean there was you know, they're different points of view on, on whether she should have created the rainbow tribe, but the, the woman was a visionary. So completely. And I didn't realise that she was like the warm-up act for uh, you know for the I have a dream um speech just yeah we should talk about her more but I think that just just following things that you're passionate about having the bravery to just live your most full life and be your best version of yourself you know is the is the absolute pinnacle for all of us and smashing down those boxes and refusing to be defined even by one period of your life or one role um is you know is is something to be aspired to for sure yeah definitely and it it, it is it is funny isn't it though that we, we find it easier to look back to find those those kind of people even though in you know in this era era of well the idea of celebrity is obviously massively changing at the moment but even if you look at celebrities look at the kind of pinnacle of modern day celebrity the kardashians um really didn't think i'd be ever talking about the kardashians on this podcast we really covered a lot of ground really have um i know pop culture too guys oh my god um <laughs> no the kardashians are business women they are creators sure. they are creators there are they are actors they are all of these different things and we we don't we don't find it surprising somehow when a celebrity goes I'm going to start a business. I'm True. Going to, in in some ways, we criticise them. We go, "What well, you're trying to capitalise on your first skill set? How dare how dare you?" Yeah, so true. But when you know you're sitting in a room, I don't know, interviewing for a position or something, and someone's like, "Well, I actually also do this." You're like, "Well, I'm not," but some people seem to have this. But that, but that's not what I'm asking for from you. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It is that weird one-way relationship, isn't it, where you feel like you're, you know, relate to them and friends with them, and then they go and how dare they do better than you, <laughs> basically. It's wild, isn't it? It's just, it's, yeah, it's just so interesting how we find it so much easier to look. Look, I mean, I guess it's just part of human nature in a way, but to look look back rather than look forward. But in thinking about looking forward and looking to the future. Do you think that, and this is, it, it sounds like a trick question, but I do genuinely mean it. Do you think that Adlan is gen genuinely changing? It's such a big question, I know. I've just dropped that one. Yeah, it is such a big question. I think I think it is, it is because it has to, and it's not alone in that. It, it all needs to change. You know, the challenges that we have, you know, we've talked about COVID, uh, we've talked about the cost of living crisis and they're all just warm up acts for climate change, collapse of biodiversity, you know, all of these, the, you know, the big acts that, that are to follow. So in a way, it's kind of good that we've had 
some muscle memory develop about how we adapt in crises and especially when they come as a fast volley and and you know all of us have seen our clients have to shift and our agencies have to shift um but probably not fast enough i would say i think we're still really struggling with the yeah, but we've all just got to sell as much as we can. We've all still got to, you know, we've got to be at what we've always been before, but wear a different clothes, wear a different skin. Um, we haven't quite assimilated all of that yet, but there are good people and even good people aren't good all the time. You know, we all struggle with that dissonance that you've talked about. You can have the best of intentions in the world, but we all have needs and wants and aspirations and mortgages and all of the other stuff as well. If we're humans and we're in a society that's you know that, that's been built up over centuries so yeah i think we are and i believe in it uh but i wish it was faster so i think we can we can we can really agree on that it is it is i i feel for sure that the the least kind of um institutionalized um like players in the game are, are are definitely moving at that quicker pace yeah, and i'm really. absolutely biased by the way because my first job was with with startups but i can see so much potential for um kind of new folk coming up and, and new shops setting up um to really change how things are done um and i'm i'm interested and i'm not trying to i'm not implying that you will leave the wonderful headland but if you were setting up shop by yourself right now mm -hmm. joe it's you oh, what cool. are you gonna do who are you hiring like if you're hiring a team how would you organize that for that future that we've just spoken about i would love to work more with activists so i you know i'm involved with various sort of activist roles myself but also i'm really lucky to work with clients who are starting to work with activists not treating them as influencers or talent or anything but just really understanding their drives what it is that they're trying to change and the change they embody in the world i think trying to find a way to bring them together with business even just on a listening basis, but then ideally on a kind of co-creation basis, I think would be really exciting space to be in at the moment. Um, and hopefully something that would, you know, would grow. And we have so much to learn, right? We have so much to learn from from activism kind of strategy and, and tactics and creative. I mean, I often think of um, Extinction Rebellion is an incredible brand yeah such an incredible brand i was with them um i went with greenpeace actually but i ended up in this bunkhouse staying with extinction rebellion last year at cop and they're literally on the floor with pieces of cardboard and sellotape and markers and face paint they have no budgets they have nothing but their absolute belief in the message yeah um, and you know they're out at the crack of dawn doing media calls and interviews and everything the amount of energy that they put into their campaigning is really you know inspirational um and yeah like creative from nothing right it's incredible and it's the execution as well like they have such a strong strong belief such a strong idea but um we were we were at the my partner and i went to the um protesting in king's cross the enough is enough and just stop oil protest oh yeah and standing with um striking striking workers and mm -hmm. it's it sounds wildly ridiculous because i have boiled it down to this but the fact that extinction rebellion always bring the music yes the, the vibe, oh. the band, 
so right. It's so right. It's brilliant. It's brilliant marketing because there we are shutting down King's Cross. Everyone's really annoyed. But they have samba. it's really hard to be really annoyed when you're doing a little samba, when there's a little marching band and there's colour and there's like, it, it's, it's, it makes it so much more attractive. That's so true. It's so true. I'm like, I'm fascinated by Extinction Rebellion because I think I remember when I first came to London when I was at uni, it was all the May Day riots and stuff and people mm. were like, you know, was doing kind of Molotov cocktails everywhere and smashing the banks up and everything. And it's all over the media and they were so demonised. And I know that there is still huge demonising of eco-zealots and all of the, you know, the Daily Mail type of language. Yeah, which is which is a worry. But I think you're right. I think turning up non-violent action turning up with a band you know being colorful and just having you know there's so many scientists and lawyers and you know they're actually really smart professional people you can't boil them down to the level of kind of thugs and anarchists it's just not that you can't you can't boil them down to one discipline either you know there's as there's as much kind of like gen z like haven't haven't are still in school in extinction rebellion as there is you know professors in climate literally um so it is inherently and and that's one of the things that i I think you're absolutely right on we have we can learn so much from activist groups because if you look i mean it's it's even just kind of obvious like look at culture look at the massive changes that have happened in in history the civil rights movement the women's movement they haven't happened because of general advertising. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> because totally. of activism. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing for me, because I think because with those with those movements and with the, you know, climate movement, um, where there's no money, it's so much more simple, you know, because I'm involved with Greenpeace as well, but that's, that's a fundraiser and that's a more traditional charity structure. So there's always a need to fundraise, to ask people for money as well as talk about the issues. Whereas with XR and those types of groups, there's no money, there's no hierarchy. Everybody's, you know, there because they want to be there, whether they're 20, whether they're 80, etc. So you don't have that same structure that you have in the corporate world or in the sort of more structured traditional NGO and charity world as well. I think that's really liberating. But back to the kind of startup concept, like that, that's what really I would love to chew over. You know, how do you take commercial organizations and bring them together with activism and try and find a space where the benefits of both can support each other what an incredible challenge that would be let's let's do that like that would just be such a fun day one day to just sit down and have a bunch of people that you like just go okay if we were going to do this how would we do this and then how do we all take that away and and, you know input that into our actual day-to-day work be such a fun Strategic and creative challenge. I mean, right? Amber drums, surely. Don't lose the amber drums. No, we could be at the pub. It would be fine. Um, <laughs> pub, music, vibes, but also thinking about creatively and strategically how to change the world. Very, very much sounds like a great day to me. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to follow on from that. So I'm I'm going to go straight to just my very last question. Get it, get it, boil it back down. Do you, what do you think about my theory that creatives need strategy and can make better use of it? 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think you need you need that jumping off point, don't you? You need a, a clear articulation. What is that? It's not a thing. You need a clear articulation of what it is that you're trying to kind of do in the world, um, especially in a commercial context. You know, I think you're in a more purely creative role and organisation, you know, for artists. Do they have a strategy? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe they do to some degree, or maybe the creative process is just much more freeform there. But certainly in the commercial world, you need that pinpoint strategy to be able to come up with creative that's relevant and that's has a hope in hell of being activated, I think, to give your clients and your teams the confidence to be able to actually move it forwards. Um, but yeah, I think to be able to flip between the two is the real trick. To, if you, to, from a generalist perspective, to go on a journey with a team where you are in that reductive mindset and you're getting down to a really analytical thinking and you articulate what the strategy is, and then to just go like, right, bring on the samba drums. Where are we going to go with this? And to get back out into that playful mode, that's the real trick. No, and I think it's I I I completely agree, but I I also love yes another analogy Joe coming through <laughs> I live for it, um the artist analogy is so interesting because just taking an analytical mind to to looking at artists and and what has made them great, we would never call it strategy, but I think a lot of them had you know an element of science an element of of logic an understanding of their distinct point of view in the world mm -hmm. and how to you know maintain that and stick to it and be consistent yeah consistency underrated part of strategy in my opinion yeah apart yeah. from Leonardo da Vinci who was anything but no exactly um but he always took the same kind of approach I would say maybe consistency and approach rather than than thinking yeah, which just leads me to another point as well about like the word creativity, I think sometimes being a blocker for some people who are scientifically minded or rationally minded and thinking about innovation, you know, I would definitely say that that's the consistent point through Da Vinci, isn't it? Like everything was so innovative to the point where they went on to become inventions and yeah. you know, technological solutions that way um, live past him. Innovation has almost become the the business friendly word for creativity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a Trojan horse, I think, to get the standard. <laughs> Trojan horse in language. Wonderful. <laughs> um, thank you so much. No worries. Such a great chat. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, lovely. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure.